Where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Alicia. And I'm Lauren. And this is the last episode for season two. Can you believe that 2018 is already at an end? I can't. Oh, it's... time has flown. Did you know that 1999 was nearly 20 years ago? Don't say that. Don't. I graduated high school that year. So did Buffy. Well, we're the same person, clearly. But yes, this is our last episode of season two. That is two whole entire seasons that we've done. We've come a long way. Let's give ourselves a, a round of applause. But do you know how sometimes you like you have an idea for a thing and then you start the thing, but so often the thing falls through. Yeah. It's like, oh, that was that was you know a thing that we tried. But we followed this. We through. followed it through. Good job. And thank you so much if you've been with us for two seasons. And look, if you haven't been with us for two seasons. That's okay. You can catch thank up. You, thank you anyway. And thanks for joining us now. Yeah. And we're going to carry on again next year. Yeah, we are actually coming back. We should make note of that. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it again. We're going to do a season three. Season three is hopefully going to be the best, brightest, most technologically advanced. We've got big <gasps> plans for 2019. Third time's a charm. Third time's the charm. It's going to be good. <laughs> Disregard the last two seasons. They've been practices. It's all <laughs> leading up to season three, which is going to be the best of them all. And we'll be launching season three on March the 7th. Which, if you didn't know, is the day before quite a significant day. International Women's That's Day. That's right. So please, if you want to catch up, you've got all summer. Which all summer. is also winter if you're north of the... Also all winter. Yeah. Hemisphere. To catch up. And, of course, before we relaunch Season 3 in March, we will also be performing live. We're doing it again. We're doing it again at the Adelaide Fringe. And we we are so excited to be announcing the world's premiere of Deviant Women, Lady Pirates Give No Fucks. Yes, that is the name of the show. It's a good name for a show. It's catchy. It's a catchy name for a show. In case you haven't figured that out, we are going to be following some pirate ladies, some pirate ladies that you might be familiar with. Their names, of course, are Alicia, please take away. Oh, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. That's correct. We have done an episode on Anne Bonny and Mary Reed back in season one, and it was such a success and such a fascinating story that we thought we just had to try and bring this one to life. Because we had a really amazing time Practicing our sword fighting skills on stage last year when we gave Julie Daubeny a go. Mm. And look, if you haven't seen Julie Daubeny or Madame Blavatsky from the 2018 Fringe season, we do plan eventually on bringing those to more cities other than Adelaide. We are working on these things. We just, we need funds <laughs> to bring them to you. But if you want to come to us, then February the 20th, 21st and 22nd of 2019, we will be performing live Lady Pirates Give No Fucks, 6pm at The Jade. We 
Hope to see you there. Tickets go on sale through Adelaide Fringe on December the 7th. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And also we had such a great time doing all of the advertising and the photo shoots <laughs> for this as well. Yeah, we really did. We had such a great time dressing up as pirates and having a beautiful photo shoot done. We have to say massive thanks to Clemmy and to Sam from Rufus and Cooper Photography. They were absolutely spectacular. We really got the five-star celebrity treatment. It was an amazing experience and they were so fantastic to work with. And the photos are spot on. They're so great. And we're so excited to share it with you. Mm -hmm. And so without further ado, perhaps we should uh, get into today's episode. I, was, I wanted to call it the penultimate, but it's not. No, it's not. It's the ultimate. It's the final one. Oy. What, what are we going to do for this Final episode. Where are we going? What are we doing? You you take us there. We are traversing actually quite an enormous, enormous range of land. Okay, so nothing too ambitious. Look, we're going back quite a number of centuries. We're going back two and a half thousand years. Oh, I like it. Into the deep, 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 deep past. Good. Um, we are going to begin on the Russian steppes. Ooh. In the Altai Mountains. Okay. We're going to go to the Black Sea. Oh, yeah, let's go there. We're going to spend some time in Greece. Oh, yeah. And we're going to come back to Central Asia. This sounds like a Kentucky tour I would like to take. I would like to take it too. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, look, I don't have a singular person's story. It's a little bit of an out-of-the-box kind of an episode because what I really wanted to do for this last episode of season two is bring together as much as I could of this history and literature and mythology and contemporaneity and bring it together as much as I could. And you know what? I hope that I have done that. I think that's that's brave and bold because we say those words so we should mash them together as and, much as we can. And what do they mean? It means that contemporaneously we're going to begin our story in the year 1993. That's fairly contemporaneous. With It's a, not, actually. It's oh, quite old now. In the scope of two and a half thousand years. It's much more recent. It's contemporaneous, all I right? So, yes. With a woman named Dr. Natalia Polosmuk. Ooh. Now, she was a senior research fellow at the Russian Institute of Archaeology and Ethnography, mm -hmm. okay? And in 1993, she and her team unearthed a kurgan, which is a type of burial mound oh, yes. on an icy plateau known to the locals as the Pastures of Heaven in eastern Russia's Altai Mountains. I'm there. I'm there with you. Which, in case you didn't know, is I on don't. the... On the border with China and Kazakhstan. Thank you. And is now the Autonomous Republic of Altai. Okay, thank you very much. So, from the 6th to the 2nd century BCE, this region on the Siberian steppes was home to the, and I apologise for my mispronunciation, Pazaric culture. I'm trying. Yeah, I, yeah, and I commend you for it. They were a nomadic Iron Age culture who lived around the Altai Mountains, Kazakhstan, and Mongolia. Now, this group were part of a larger group of tribes known as the, drumroll please, Scythians. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of them? Scythians? I'm all over them. Well, you know what, though? I actually think that they are a totally underrepresented ancient people who are badass and everybody needs to know about them. If you think about your ancient cultures, you've got obviously like your Greeks, your Egyptians, your Mesopotamians, but who is like Scythians? No one. No one. I, but I only know of them because of the Greeks. Thank you. And we're going to come to the Greeks because they are important. So just lock the Greeks away. But if you 
haven't heard of the Scythians, they were an ancient nomadic people who roamed an enormous stretch of land all the way from northern China through Serbia to the Black Sea. Now, Dr. Polomzak's team had to be escorted to these mounds by a border guard because the territory of the burial is actually disputed between Russia and China. Mm. But it was worth it. So the team set to uncovering the Kurgan. Now this was one made in a typical fashion. It was built from notched wood logs to form something like a wooden cabin. Now this is sort of thatched over, there's earth laid over the top. So they look like right. hills. So from the outside, it's just like a mound. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They just look like little hills that you see popping up amongst the fields. Yeah. They're nippleless breasts. <laughs> And while the earliest Kurgans date back to the 4th millennium BCE. Whoa, that's a long time ago. Yes, it is. The Yukok princesses was from about the 5th century BCE, still a very long time ago. Okay. And that's what we're looking at today. This is where we're looking. Yeah. Yes. Now, as was typical of Scythian burials, the Kurgan was filled with a range of items to aid the entombed in the afterlife. And in fact, when the archaeologists first entered the tomb, they could still smell the mutton and horse meat that oh had been God. laid out. All of that time later. Yes. Two and a half thousand years. Okay, so you're talking about an ice maiden though, right? An ice, yes. So you're also talking about stuff that has been, well, frozen in ice. And this is exactly why it was so well preserved. That's right, because yeah. Because it has been frozen. So like entombed not only through a mummification process that I'll come to in a little bit. So this body had been mummified, but everything was preserved. So this is like one of those stories where then now we take some DNA and we make a dinosaur on an island and we turn it into a theme park and then we go and visit it and then we all get killed by dinosaurs. Yes. Is that what happens next? Yes, exactly. Because it was so well preserved. Yep. And humans have never learnt chaos theory as they should. (laughs) No, we haven't. Anyway. In this tomb, they found the remains of dairy products like yogurt served in. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> just had like a, I just had an image of like small tubs, like okay, not tubs, but in an elaborate carved vessel. Oh, that's very similar. And yes. I said like yo play. It's French for yum. It, that's what was. Them? That is so weird that you should say that because on the outside, yeah, it said. Your play, Iranian for yum. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I should say that actually the language that they spoke is an old form of, well, it's an Iranian culture. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm going to come to that. Okay. They also found serving tools such as trays, a horn cup, and there were six saddled horses that were supposed to guide the buried into the afterlife and which also indicate that this was probably a holy person or a folk healer. So actually like four horses? Six six horses. So not like objects that were representative of horses, but actual horses. Buried facing east. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Now, this burial was, in case I haven't told you, of the Ice Maiden, otherwise known as the Yukok 
princess. And she, like I said, is thought to have been a holy woman or a folk healer, some sort of shamanistic woman. And when she was uncovered, she was incredibly well preserved. And this is what's made her so remarkable. Her face was apparently like white as snow. And, and this is very significant, she was covered in these elaborate and beautiful tattoos. So I don't, have you heard of the Yukok princess? You know what? I actually do remember when this was in the news because I'm that old. Yeah, so early 90s. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, think it was pretty significant at the time. Yeah. And so this extraordinary tattoo uh, was preserved because of the ice, but unfortunately when they excavated her, they used a method to melt her out of the ice and this actually ended up damaging some of the skin. But nevertheless, they found, you know, she's covered in all kinds of mythological animals. She's got a deer with a griffin's beak. That's the best kind of deer. Get this, Capricorn antlers. Then the antlers themselves have griffin heads on them. What? She also has a spotted panther. She has a deer's head on her wrist, a winged snow leopard, a fish and sheep. Oh, my God. The, sh- the sheep aren't as exciting as everything else. The sheep are, like, <laughs> the sheep are a bit of an anticlimax at the end there. But everything else is pretty amazing. Like, she has like, I would have started with the sheep and Yeah, that's actually that. true. Probably yeah. end with like the griffin's beak with the Capricorn antlers and then the antlers with the griffin heads yes. on them. Yeah, yeah. that would have yeah. been a better yeah. a better build up that I way. see that now. Yeah. I see that now. But that's all right because, oh, my fucking God, that's amazing. And when you think about the fact that this was a tradition that was actually really normal yeah. two and a half thousand years ago. So of the Scythians, this was a customary practice. And as Dr. Polumsak, the woman who discovered the Yukok princess, she says that these tattoos were a means of identification and also a way to help you find your people once you were in the afterlife. Oh, wow. The types of animals that you had symbolize your position in society. So like, oh my God, imagine what antlers and Capricorns and griffins say about you. Yeah. But also sheep. Interesting. <laughs> did the sheep have like horns and griffins on the sheep? Look, maybe they did. Maybe they did. I should look at some pictures. Okay. Like I said, some of the skin was damaged because of the melting effort methods, yeah. you never know. And the more tattoos you have, the longer you lived and therefore the higher position in society you have. So tattoos are like a thing that you keep adding. Okay, well, look, like tattoos are today. They're, yeah. You know, a progressive thing that you keep getting. Yeah. If anyone out there is looking for a new tattoo, go into the shop and be like, can I have... A thing with the horns, with a griffin, with the thing. Just like, yeah. I want a griffin's head with some antlers. And then on those antlers, I want more griffin's heads. Yeah. That's what you should request. That's what you're asking I'm, That's for. what I'm going to get. Same here. We should do that later. We'll, we'll go out and get this tattoo after this episode. Yes. Okay. Now, the Yukok princess, she actually only had two arms tattooed. So despite her status, this kind of indicates that she was actually probably quite young. Now, there are also some conflicts depicted in these tattoos. There's a clash between vultures and hoofed animals. Some suggest that these symbolise the conflict between the lower world and the middle world. Mm. So they're very symbolic as well. And again, if we think about the fact that she was probably, again, some kind of shaman or folk healer, Mm. I wonder if that has any significance about her status in society because the Scythians were also, because they were a nomadic culture, they didn't leave behind the kinds of written texts that we have of their neighbouring cultures of the time, you know, like the Greeks. And so 
so much of what we understand about them comes from these Kurgans and from all of the clues left in the Kurgans. So as I was saying, as well as her in incredibly elaborate tattoos, she was also dressed in finery. She had a crimson and white woven wool skirt, a yellow Chinese silk blouse, oh, wow. which is significant because Chinese silk was very rare at the time, yeah. worth more than gold. Now, she also had a bunch of jewellery as well as an elaborate three-foot-high headdress. <gasps> God, did it have griffins on it? It was made of wood. Mm -hmm. It has a molded felt covering and eight carved feline figures. Oh, no. In gold. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. She was, however, bald. Okay. And instead she wore a wig made of horsehair. And on top of this wig, I think as a part of the headdress, was the tree of life. Oh. And on this wig she also had small figures of birds decorated in gold. And on the front of the wig was a carving of a deer. Oh, my God. So a lot of this animal symbolism was hugely important. And this is one of the things that kind of has told archaeologists and scholars so much about the Scythians. We don't do this anymore. I want to be buried like this. We need to do more burying like this. Like I've often said that if I happen to die sometime soon, then I wish to be buried with my cats, yeah. even if the cats are still alive. <laughs> I was going to say, does that mean that they have to... Okay, I'm sorry. Does it my... mean that the cats have to get buried alive or are you going to have them put down humanely to be buried with you? I, I don't know. It's up to whoever's left behind. <laughs> but the cats are coming with me Are you going to have them, the afterlife. Are you going to have them taxidermied yes. into a headdress that you yes. will be buried in? Yes. Okay, just so everyone knows, I don't really mean that. <laughs> but in a lot of ways, I also mean that. <laughs> the part of you that really loves cats means it. And also the part of you that really loves cats is Doesn't horrified. It. By it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's equal measure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, in the Kogan was found a bunch of opium and marijuana. Wow. Mm-hmm. This chick knows how to fucking party. <laughs> Along with a charcoal brazier. As you do. For burning. Yeah. And her coffin was decorated with leather appliques depicting more deer figures. And her coffin was eight feet long. So she was... What? So a, how tall was she? She was a, between 162 and 168 centimetres. Which is still very tall. Which at the time was very tall. Yeah. That's like five foot six or seven? Yeah, about Ish. that. Ish. Yeah. Okay. So as I was saying, her tattoos... Incredible. She was very tall. She was found lying on her side in a sleeping position with oh. her knees bent. So even though she had this like really long eight foot coffin, yeah. she was actually kind of like curled up in a little sleeping, like cuddly position. Significantly, she was buried alone. Okay. Now this usually would signify one's celibacy and this ah. separated her from other women. And again, indicates. Were buried with their partners or yes. like their families. Yeah, exactly. And so this indicates her position as a healer, shaman. Also suggests she was quite independent and exceptional. Mm, the rock she's rocking, she bought it. I bought, I bought it. it. Yes. The headdress I'm wearing, <laughs> I bought it. Yeah, etc. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but we do have a little bit of controversies here because as often happens when archaeologists dig up burial sites, particularly sacred cultural burial sites, there was some 
controversy, a dispute began between the Russian authorities and the local Altai inhabitants who claimed that the Yukok princess was their own. However, the Russian authorities dispute this claim as they say that she is of the, again, I apologize for my pronunciation, Pazuric people. As I said, they were the nomadic tribe belonging to the broader umbrella of the Scythians. The thing is, that the Pazuric people, they descend apparently from Iranian Caucasian mm-hmm. lineage, whereas the people of the Altai region descend from Asian lineage. And so the Russian authorities are like, well, actually you have no blood connection and therefore she's not yours. However, you know, and I mean, well, let's face it, this could just have been a Russian ploy to, you know, keep her theirs. Her removal was seen to have been a great sin by the holy men of the region, and they claim that every Kurgan has its own spirit. And because it was disturbed, the people have since suffered a lot of misfortune, and they blame forest fires, high winds, illness, suicides, and an upsurge in earthquakes on her removal. Well, this throws up a whole lot of things, though, about removing bodies from from burial sites, sacred rubbish. It's like it is. It's... It's a minefield. The whole thing is a minefield. Absolutely. So where did she actually end up? Like, where is she now? So actually, she ended up being looked after by the people who look after Lenin, like the embalmed remains of Lenin. However, there was a campaign to have her remains returned to the Altai region. And a compromise was eventually reached that meant that she was moved from a scientific institute in Novosibirsk, 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 I'm sorry, to the Republican National Museum in the capital of Gorno-Altaisk. And there are no new archaeological digs allowed Mm. in that same region where she was dug up. See, this is the thing, though. Like, as I say, it's a whole minefield because the thing is, is like we want to know. There's so much there, so much history. And, you know, archaeologists, anthropologists, they need to see this stuff in order for us to piece together the history. But at the same time, of course... When you were buried like that, you were buried like that for, for a reason. reason. And there are sacred and cultural significance exactly. to these sites. Yeah. And if you disturb that, then you disturb yep. all of that, yep. all of that significant spiritual ancestry. Mm-hmm. Which I think, oh, and while it is totally a compromise, at least returning the remains to where they came from is something. Yeah. And we have a history of that here, and there are a fuck ton of remains that need to be returned to their country in Australia. Mm. But you know, we've got a fuck ton of, of things we need to re- like. This is the thing, yeah. though, you yeah. know. And this is this is the controversy, and I think this is one of those things that this is a rabbit hole. But this is one of those things that I think is going to get more and more prominent mm. in the future. Mm. And, and museums will Massively. get em- museums yeah. will get emptied out, and then that's also problematic. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> let's not go down that rabbit hole. Okay. Anyway, tangentially to this rabbit hole, but still kind of in the same area, the Ice Maiden was not the only lady dug up from the steppes. Other Kurgans have been archaeologically excavated, and while the Yukok princess may have been a healer or a shaman, not all of them were. Mm. Archaeologists have been digging up graves around the Russian steppes for a while. And typical of these burials are warriors laid to rest with weapons, particularly bows and arrows, axes, knives, as well as the food and drink, horses and... play Charcoal. Yes, the play, And the, uh, importantly, the charcoal braziers. Yeah. 
with the not the, the charcoal brasiers, which would be a completely different thing. <laughs> they would cro- imagine that. <laughs> not very supportive. They would be not supportive at all. No. <laughs> and stain everything. Yeah. That's um, a terrible idea. Don't invent those, anyone. But basically they were buried with everything that a warrior might need to see them through the afterlife. But it had been assumed. Oh, yeah, good old assumptions. Uh-huh, uh-huh. of course, because they started getting, like, excavated in the 1940s. And back then there were very different ideas about gender. And mm-hmm. these ideas about gender painted the way that archaeologists saw these remains. Yeah, so let's, rather than looking very carefully at the skeleton... And perhaps, you know, like establishing a gender based on that mm. skeleton, mm. it's going to establish a gender based on what's in the burial mounds. Funny you should say that. Yeah. Yes. Because, of course, they were all assumed to be male graves yeah. and that all of these weapons were symbols of masculine burials. Yeah. However, however, uh-huh. recent DNA technology has revealed that one third of these burials were women and three out of four Scythian women are found buried with weapons Mm. and war injuries present on their skeletons. Yeah, right. That's a lot. That is a lot. It's funny because I have a student that I have, she's studying archaeology and we have this conversation all the time about the biases that archaeologists can, any scholar, any scholar Mm -hmm. studying data can bring with them to that data. And this is why for me as somebody from the humanities, look, this is a total exaggeration, but I do like to remind people that there's no such thing as objectivity. And, of course, I know that that's an overstatement. There are some things that we can objectively say are true. However, a lot of things that people think are objective are not objective. Mm. We are subjective in so so many many ways. Things and yeah. we bring our biases and our assumptions with us all the time. And this is such a significant example of this. So this completely throws away that assumption that grave goods, war grave goods are a signal of a male grave. Mm-hmm. So who was this mysterious, tattooed, exceptional, virginal healer, shaman woman? She was a she was a dude. Of what we do know about her, obviously we don't know anything about her biography. Mm. We know that she was very important, but we don't know much about how she lived. But what her burial is so significant because it, like I said, throughout a lot of these assumptions that we had about the role of women in antiquity, because of course, who else was around two and a half thousand years ago. Who else was roaming these similar kinds of lands, particularly around the Black Sea? Um, do you want me to say the Greeks? I do. Yeah. The Greeks! The Greeks! And you know what? If anyone was going to write a history that was going to not believe that women could do anything, <laughs> it was going to be the Greeks! Well, this is exactly it. Okay, so in case you haven't caught on, mm-hmm. dear listener, yeah. a version of... A badass mounted tattooed women slinging arrows or sounds a little bit like the Amazons. Sure does. This is where we've been going. <laughs> this is where we're going. This we're going to the Amazons. Going. Here yeah. we are. We're mm-hmm. in mythology land. See how we that just went seamless. from contemporaneity to history to mythology. Awesome. Thank you. And then we'll get to literature. Yes. Oh, my God. Kind of. Yes. We can do it. We're going to do I'm going to do all four. We're going to do the quadruplet. <laughs> now, the Amazons were, of course, giant, five or seven, warrior women of the aforementioned Greek mythology. Who, horse riding. Horse riding. Yeah. Bow 
Toting. Toting. They lived in Thermosera near the Black Sea. You may have heard the story that the name Amazon means without breast and is said to derive from the quote-unquote fact that the Amazons cut off one breast to better allow them to throw a javelin and to shoot their bow and arrow. But this is bokum. We know this. Bokum. Yes. Is that the word you're going to use? That's the word I chose. <laughs> That's the word I chose. All right. I know what I was expecting. And actually, a recent contender for the name, for a, a real version of the name, comes not from the Greek at all, but from Circassian, mm-hmm. the language of the Nart Sagas. Which I know all about from that thing I had to do about Nart Sagas, <laughs> which was actually great. And I really do enjoy the Nart Sagas. We'll do the Nart Sagas one of these days. We will. Do you know the story of the Nart Sagas that tells of a fierce band of women warriors? Maybe. Also known as the Amazon. Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. The Amazon. So that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't it, just? it though? Yeah. I'm not going to go into all of the etymology of Amazons. If you really want to look it up, there's like a bunch of different theories mm. about it. But anyway, it's not because it comes from without breast is my point. Anyway, they were also very friendly called killers of men, destroyers <laughs> of men, yeah, no. murderesses, and of course, those who loathe all men. Yeah. But they were also the equals of men. Yes. As well. Yes. Mm. Which is why... They are known as the destroyers of men <laughs> to the Greeks. Yeah. We have right. to keep this in context. Yeah. So Amazons first show up in Homer's Iliad, where they're portrayed as fierce warrior women who make snusu with men that they capture in order to breed more female warriors. Again, what are these words that you <laughs> Did using? you not get my reference? That was a Futurama joke. No. Death by snoo snoo. No. No? Okay, never mind. Anyway, they appear as major players in the Trojan War where they fought alongside and against some of the great Greek heroes. We've got Hercules, Theseus, Achilles. Indeed, it seems that one of the great feats that a Greek hero must accomplish in his journeys was to best an Amazonian queen. And indeed, they are said to have hated all men. And if they weren't procreating with captured Greeks, it was with the Gargarians, who were an all-male tribe who lived conveniently nearby. They'd meet up once a year in the spring, of course, it is the season, and do their business, then go their separate ways. It was all very hush-hush. They did it in the dark and just with whoever they randomly came upon. The girls that resulted from these unions were kept, of course, and the boys were either killed or returned to their fathers if the Amazons were feeling generous. And by fathers, I mean randomly assigned to a Gargarian man because no one really knew the paternity of yeah. anybody. Did they also blind them? I think that was another thing that apparently they used to do as Or well. maimed their legs. Yes, they would, they would maim them or blind them. Yes. Yeah. This kind of annual mating ritual for procreation led many to believe that the Amazons were all lesbians. And hey, power to them. Especially if, if these were the actual Scythians. We have mm. no, I guess, real evidence to suggest this. But we are talking about the myth yeah, of the Amazons. Yeah, we're talking about the mythological Amazons. Yeah, and as the myth of the Amazons, this notion actually really comes from the 20th century with a Russian poet, Marina Setseva, who said that they were a symbol of lesbianism in antiquity, which is a nice thought, though, really. To, um, to the Greeks. Well, actually, to the Greeks... 
They weren't. Like, the Greeks make no mention of them being lesbians. Mm. So Adrian Mayer, who wrote the book Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World, she says that because the Greeks were not shy about homosexuality, Mm. in in fact, they were rather... They were into it. They were into it. They probably would have mentioned if the Amazons were lesbians, but they don't. Yeah. Which is why this seems to be one of those kind of revisionist kind of mm-hmm. things that we've applied to them. Like we want we want to think about the Amazons as being lesbians, but there is actually not really any mythological genuinely in the yeah. in the texts yeah. that suggests this. And if we're thinking about the Scythians as real people, then those were just women functioning in their society that also included men. They were fighting alongside yeah, the men. Exactly. Right? They were fighting alongside men. They weren't yeah. an independent all female. Yeah, Fem- like the, it wasn't a feminist utopia. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a mythologized matriarchy. No, no. it wasn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, sadly. But also, I guess the Greeks very much talk about male homosexuality a lot more than they talk about female sexuality, and so that's not to say, I suppose, that the absence of lesbianism in the myth of the Amazons is an absence of lesbianism. It's, I think, actually more a condition of a male-centric worldview. But it's also what the Amazons represented to the Greeks. Like, it's how they functioned as, like, a foil to the Greeks, I suppose, in a way. Like like you were saying before, it's that idea that you fought and bested an Amazon. So it wasn't really about who they were. It was about how the Greeks, what they meant to the Greeks and how they interacted with the Greeks. As mythical beings. As mythical beings. Who were descendants of the god Ares and the nymph Harmonia. And so they're not human in the same way that Greek women are human. And so they're not, I guess, they don't don't function in the same way. They are, they're like... Scylla and they're like yeah. Circe and they're like, they're like Athena. The cent- yeah. like, they're like centaurs. They're like, yeah, they're mythical creatures. And it's actually really interesting, I think, the way that Greek society has this enormous split between the the way that they mythologize women because we've got all these goddesses who are extremely powerful and and have a lot of agency and have as much power in a lot of cases as male gods yeah. then there's all the nymphs as well like there's so much the demigods yeah yep whereas women in greek society were so utterly powerless like when you think about like the repressed victorian housewife it's like take that up to level 10 and you've got an athenian woman like stay inside all the time literally in the house all the time it was the slaves who went out and did all the shopping like they had their own quarters of their house like they couldn't even go in their entire house they were kept in the back yeah greek women had a really Bad. <laughs> a really bad time. Yeah, yeah. Unless, like, you'd be better off. I mean, okay. You were going to say you'd be better off as a slave. No. No, no, no. I was going to say you'd be better off as a sex worker. Mm. Like, the Hesherai were... Had a lot more freedom. So much more freedom. Yeah. They were educated. They could play music. They yeah. They could move to in men. society. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you you really actually didn't want to be... if According to, I guess, our contemporary ideas of the way that we would want to live our lives, like, if I was to go back into ancient Greece, I'd, I would want to be a Hesherai. I would want to be a high-class working woman. Yeah. So it's totally interesting that despite not allowing their own women any agency, they were really captivated by this idea of female warriors and in Mm. fact second only to hercules are depictions of amazonian women on 
like all across Greek society, they're on artwork, pottery, they're in plays, they're on jewellery boxes and vases. They're on temples as well. Temples, they are, they're prolific mm. as an icon in society. And again, I come back to Adrienne Mayer and she kind of found that girls had these toy Amazonian dolls. I was going to say this. I was going to say that they're kind of like the equivalent of like girls now with unicorns. Yes. Like, you know? Yes. You get obsessed with a little unicorn. It it's was a like, thing that you can never be. Yeah, you're obsessed with an Amazon. Yeah, that yeah. was your thing. But they did, and it's interesting that they allowed them to play with these dolls because these dolls. So one that was discovered in a grave with with her little girl owner, which is sad. But she had a helmet, long hair. She was dressed in like Amazonian garbs, so she had a belted tunic. She had legs that like could walk, so oh, she was like a Barbie doll. Oh my god! She had a bow, a spear, and a shield. And so this kind of suggests that Amazons were at least in some respect, allowed as role models for young girls in the classical world. So like you said, with unicorns, like it must have been this like fantasy that girls who were otherwise, oh God, like destined to this life of domestic drudgery that was like it must have been the most boring existence. Oh, I can't even imagine it. And so they could at least dream of this, like, far away emancipated tribe of women. Ride horses <laughs> and mate with men. In the dark. In the dark. In Any the man forest. you please. <laughs> okay, so this kind of leads me to, I can, because the Amazons, while they, like you said, they're kind of this foil, right? Mm. And there's this really weird split of between admiration but also seeing them as barbarians. Yeah. They are ultimately not what you want your women to be. Yeah. But it's a way to kill a woman without it being a cowardly thing to do as yes. well. Yes. And there's also this weird kind of sexual stuff tied up in it. Oh, and falling in love. Is it? No, it's not Hippolyta. It's one of the princes. There's another queen. Somebody kills and, like, in that moment of her, her helmet falling off, realising that it's a woman and falling in love with her immediately. Yes, yes. So it, it, there's, there's the romanticised, yes. sexualised version that plays into it as well. Yeah. They're not just warrior women. They're also, like, a sexual fantasy too. Yeah, which is also interesting because I think they've kind of got this little bit of the kind of virgin whore dichotomy that we have in, you know, the Christian sort of... Uh, yeah, a version of the world. A lot of bit. <laughs> a lot of bit. A lot of bit. But I think that they're at least a little bit more complex. At least, the, like, and again, the Greeks, while they did suppress the real women an awful extent. Despite being a really egalitarian freaking society. Well, in, we say in that. Theory, in theory. <laughs> they did have a lot of slaves. And yeah, exactly. You couldn't be a citizen if you were, like, not fit a very, very tiny number of criteria. But see, that's the thing, though, isn't it, as well? Because then they had all these egalitarian rules that applied to a certain, like... A very small section very of society. <laughs> yeah, anyway. But also then there's Sparta, okay? Mm. So the Spartan women had a little bit more freedom. Yes. In the sense that they could run businesses, they could own their own household goods, and they were trained in the same kind of war, like war-type training, whatever you call that, that the men were trained in. Warcraft. Warcraft? They were trained in Warcraft. <laughs> they spent a lot of time at the computer. <laughs> They're so actually not time. very fit. But they were never actually allowed to partake in any of the the things that they were trained in. And and so there is more, I think, for it's more for defense. It's more for defending the home. It's in a lot for of defense ways. and it's because if you are a strong, fit 
war-minded woman, you're going to raise strong, fit yeah. sons yeah. who will go off to fight. So, yeah, it's absolutely – it's still tied up with the home. It's still mm. tied up with your Domestic, function as a woman and domesticity. Yeah. So as I was saying, like there's this vision of what the Amazonian was also had these associations of kind of barbarianism and – I think one of the stories that kind of portrays this is that of Atalanta. Mm -hmm. Now, Atalanta was a girl who was raised by wild bears, okay? So she grew up free in the woods. Running in the forest. But with bears, apparently. Jumping on the field mice and bopping them on the head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. An idealistic childhood. <laughs> an idealistic genre. what i would have given i do you know how many stories i wrote when i was like eight about growing up in the jungle i can see that of just being an emancipated child yeah. raised by some kind of yeah. forest creature i can see that with my bow and arrow eating coconuts it was gonna be a grand old <laughs> life atalanta had this childhood and she then as she grew up she became famed for her huntress skills and she was asked to join a great hunting expedition the um caledonian boar hunt which set out to defeat a boar let loose on southern greece by artemis as naughty artemis oh naughty artemis setting loose those animals now she was the one who got the kill but when it came to her being the one with the trophy all the dudes were like, hey now, hey now, you're a woman. You don't get to have the trophy of the boar. Like this can't be yours because you're a woman. Mm. And they were so reluctant to accept that she should get this trophy that this huge fight broke out and men died over this fight, including her lover. So afterwards she met up with her father she found him and he was a king and Who so thought and as a king he was like hey you should marry but she was like nah i really just want to hang out in the woods and hunt the and hang out on my own with the bears but it was ancient greece and he was a king so what's a girl to do <laughs> she knew that no man though could beat her at running so she decided to set up a foot race and make herself the prize and it worked for a while. Like, all of these men challenged her to a race, aiming to get her hand, and she beat them all. Um, and then they died. Yes. Mm -hmm. That was the prize for losing? Yeah. Yeah. Got, What's yeah. the opposite of a prize? Um, Consequence? Yeah. Um, yeah, so they all died until tricky hipponomies came along. Tricky now, fucker. he was tight with Aphrodite, and he got her to help him trick Atlanta. The trick was to drop three golden apples along the racetrack, which yeah, was, was supposed to distract her. But it did. And it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it really worked, which I don't even know why she needed, why he needed the help of a goddess. To figure that out. To drop some apples. <laughs> I guess they were gold apples. They were golden apples. The first two she was like recovered from. The third one, however, it was too many. She couldn't catch him. He... Won the race and with it he won her hand in marriage. But by fucking trickery. Turns out though, despite being a marriage based on a lie, they were actually pretty happy together <laughs> because that out they both just really wanted to spend all their time hanging out in the woods and hunting. They both liked bears. They both liked bears, they both liked hunting, and they both loved making love. Making sweet, sweet love. They loved making out in the forest. With golden apples. Until one day. Oh, no. They decided to do it in a sacred grove. Oh, wow. 
And their punishment was to get turned into lions. That's a pretty good punishment. Well, they say... Okay, so the Greeks apparently said that this was a punishment because there was, for some reason... I don't know how true this is, but apparently the Greeks believed that lions didn't mate with each other. (laughs) And so for them to be both turned into a lion and a lioness meant that they were kind of like doomed to a lifetime of like being with each other but not being able to be with each other. And that like as a lioness she was like destined for this life of solitude and wandering all alone. But But who was giving birth to baby lions? (laughs) Look, they made out with other giant cats. Maybe they thought that panthers and lions. Yes. And then that created more lions. Apparently. Anyway. Those Greeks were pretty dumb for being so smart. But it seems though, like, but other scholars say, no, actually, this is maybe just the gods taking it easy on them because they got to just live the rest of their lives as a lion and a lioness who, well, let's be honest, do what they were already doing, hanging out in the woods, hunting and making love. And that was their favourite things to do. So (laughs) they got to just keep doing that forever. So actually it's a happy ending. Pretty good. Anyway, when we take the version of the story where being turned into a lion means Atlanta roams forever by herself in this ferocious barbaric form of a lion, we see that this is a story that is supposed to represent what happens to young girls when they are left mm-hmm. to their own will, when they are grow when they grow up without the good civilizing yep. discipline of the home and the hearth and the family. Mm-hmm. And that this Patriarchy. is the risk that you run. You get turned into a lion. That's right. So the Amazons in this respect kind of represent this wild woman as well, this mm. this version of femininity that as much as it can be admired and looked up to is also something that represents that where, again, we see the diametric split in femininity between the civilised and the wild woman. She's the wild woman. Yeah. She's the woman that you're not supposed to want to mm-hmm. be, even though we all know that every woman deep down really wants to be the wild woman. <laughs> Is that not true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm all on board. I'm all on board. (laughs) Okay. Now, Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian that we've discussed before. And he was, what was he, Lauren? He was the father of what, Lauren? History. Yes. Good good work. Thank you. He wrote about these fierce warrior women as being actual Scythians. Okay, so he was the one who made the connection. Yeah. Yeah. Mm However, there's still something of a mythological basis in the story because the and here's where we get to the literature. Thank you. <gasps> he described a battle between the Greeks and the Amazons at Thermodon. Now the women lost and they were taken prisoner on Greek ships. However, they rose up, took the ships, and killed the Greek crew. But these are horsewomen of the plains. They can't sail a ship. And so the ship drifted to the shore of the Black Sea where they entered Scythian territory. Now, they got themselves into a battle, of course, and once it was over, the Scythians were looking at the dead and they were like, bro, these are ladies. (laughs) Is that how they said it? It's what they said. Um, Oh I'm my just God. quoting Herodotus here, Alicia. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> baby ladies. They've got some boobs. Oh my God. Oh shit. We should mate with them. But they're dead. Well, the ones who are alive. 
They when they were after okay, the battle. Okay, good. All right, good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Some okay. of them ran away. It didn't just turn into like a necrophilia no. type situation. No. no. Sorry to have implied that. Yeah. They were yeah. like the uh, ones, Briefly, I thought that's the what ones who got away. Yeah, we okay. should go after them and yeah. mate with them. Those ones. Them, yeah. the alive ones who got away. Yeah. And so they also, I guess, were pretty wary of them though. So they were like, okay, we'll just need to stalk them, check them out, <laughs> see what they're all about, and if. We hang about while they get on with their business and we get on with our business and we'll, we'll see if our businesses match and then we'll know if we're a good fit and then we can, like, respectfully ask for their consent and we can make babies together. Right? Again, this is exactly the wording. Yeah. <laughs> what I, I think is actually kind of remarkable here is that they weren't just like, let's go, you know what, with those yeah. women that they were actually like, let's hold back and watch them and then, like, approach slowly and start talking to them. Yeah, and you be my wingman and I'll be your wingman yeah. and we'll get there. and that's what they did. Yeah. They kind of, like, camped really close to the Amazonian camp and they just, like, after day after day, they just, like, crept a little bit closer, but they couldn't speak the same language. Aww. So they were communicating. It's actually kind of a beautiful love story. Kind of a beautiful love story. They were communicating in signs and eventually they were all just like, yeah, all right. All right, yeah, you're okay. And they all they got married, (laughs) and the Amazons were like, All right, you guys, you should come with us. We're gonna move northeast, we're gonna go to the steppes, and you're gonna be our husband brides, and we're now in charge. And this is how the Scythians were born. I really like how you just summarized history. (laughs) And that everyone is the history of history. Summarized for you, according, according to Herodotus. <laughs> I was according to Lauren. I like the recount. Okay, it was good. So this is kind of like obviously this is not exactly who the Scythians were, but it does sort of give us this historical context for understanding that even Herodotus, even the Greeks did recognise that there really were these bands Mm. of women, and up until again quite recently, before these archaeological discoveries. Everybody just assumed that the Greeks were mythologizing these women. Yeah. There was no historical basis to think, to assume that the Amazons were real women. Yeah. Right? Well, because, I mean, when the Greeks, when it, they were actually being recorded by the Greeks, when they mm. were being recorded by Homer, even as well by Herodotus, they were already historical even to the Greeks. So they were already a mythological idea pretty much even to the the Greeks, they were already mythologizing their own past. They did overlap though. So they, they are also contemporaneous to the Greeks though as well because they were in this sort of 2nd to 6th, 7th BCE, which is the same kind of time period as the Greeks. So there is the mythology of the Homer, which is coming much earlier, but then Herodotus, by the time he's writing much, much more recently, yeah. that's when they're kind of in the mythology part. Yeah. But they, they did exist for a time contemporaneously. Yeah, and yeah. So alongside each other. Yes. Alongside yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. And yeah. they really actually would have come into conflict with each other. And you really have to imagine what it must have been for the Greeks when they came across the Scythians. Like, and imagine, again, these women who were taller than average, taller than the Greek women, bedecked in weapons, covered in tattoos, plundering towards them on horses. Meanwhile, the you know, the Greek women were completely excluded from public life, completely excluded from war. Like, mm. oh, my God. So it's actually really no wonder that the myth of the Amazons arose. But again, what I really want to emphasise 
is it was and it wasn't a myth to the Greeks. The Greeks mm. knew that there was a historical basis for the Scythians. Yeah. It's just that in the meantime, since the Greeks, and again, this comes back to all of our cultural biases and assumptions, is that we erased them. Yeah. Psh, warrior women, they can't be real. They definitely belong to myth. Yeah. yeah. And the Greeks thought that the idea of warrior women was so absurd that Palophatus, a Greek writer who rationalised the myths, so he kind of like, I guess he was a, a bit of a theologian. He wrote about like what the reality of the myths must have been. He tried to explain them away. He said that the Amazons must have been men who wore dressed to their feet, tied their hair up and shaved their beards. Oh, yeah, clearly. Because it can't have been women. So. It was just effeminate dudes. Yes. Yeah. But clearly. Clearly men. Mm. As I said, Herodotus kind of introduced the world to the idea that the Amazons were actually Scythians. And as I said at the top, this theory has been quite considerably strengthened by the discovery of the graves like the Ice Maiden. So now we know the Scythians did in fact have female warriors. So now let's talk about the real Scythian women. Please. Thank you. Okay. Now, in Greek art and myth, Amazons are depicted as wearing Greek-style armour and headdress, so the tunics, cinched mm, waists, mm-hmm. etc. The Scythians, meanwhile, wore, wait for it, trousers. I knew you were going to say that. Well, the Scythians actually invented trousers. I also knew you were going to say that. Sure you did. No, I did. I genuinely did. <laughs> well, they did. Because I genuinely knew that they invented trousers. Good for I you. I knew that. Good for you then. Thank you. I'm glad my... I'm sorry. But it makes total sense, though. Like, even if you didn't know that, I'm sure you could have guessed it. Because if you're going to spend all of your life on horseback... You're going to need to wear trousers. need trousers. I think that we can imagine the Scythians as really kind of like the Dothraki. Oh, now you know what I'm talking about. That look on your face. You're like, what does that mean? Yeah, that's right, Alicia, the Dothraki. I'm sure many of our listeners will know what I'm talking about. They are the nomadic horse people of Westeros. All right? Okay. (laughs) They're from, actually, they're not from Westeros. Doesn't matter. So they're not real. Game of Thrones. Yeah. All right. Okay. Right. Just, well, I don't need to know that. Do I'm giving I? the people a mental image, all right? Okay, sure. Concrete imagery helps people understand abstract thoughts, Alyssia. Does it? Does it, Lauren? <laughs> Thank you for enlightening me. Anyway, they ranged the area all the way from the Black Sea to Mongolia and they lived Who, in. the guys in Game of Thrones? <laughs> yes. Yes. And the Scythians. And And they lived in what were basically covered wagons and they would kind of group these together in like groups of four. I love a covered wagon. As a house. I want to live in a covered wagon. I used to make covered wagons out of Lego all the time. I think we've had this (laughs) I just... Anyway. Anyway, they were small tribes. And so as a society, like everybody had to contribute. And, And that means that they were also quite egalitarian. In actual reality rather than in theory. Yes. Like some people. That's right. In actual reality, they were quite egalitarian. So for Scythian girls, unlike the unfortunate story of Atalanta, a growing up in the wilderness on horseback with a bow was a reality. They were taught these skills, like I am imagining, since they can walk, Mm. you know, like you have to because that's your lifestyle. You grow up literally on horseback. And according to Mare, who wrote the book, the fact that they lived their lives on horses is actually probably a big part of what contributed to the egalitarian nature of society. Because, like, if you think about it, someone trained with a bow, Mm. 
on a horse, like it doesn't matter what size you are. Yeah. It doesn't matter how fast you are. Yeah. There's nothing about like your physiological, biological determinism that kind of influences how accurate you are with a yeah. bow. And a horse You're is on the horse. Gonna run as fast yeah. as a horse does, <laughs> no matter right. what's between your legs. Yeah. It's still a horse. Yeah. Right? And so when it comes to combat in this context, there's actually not a lot that differentiates a male warrior from a female warrior. Mm. The other thing is that they were really quite formidable warriors because they invented this bow that was um, really powerful. It's like the one that the return one, isn't it? The one that kind of comes back in and out. It was it was compact and smaller, yeah, and it was made up of like all these wooden layers, yeah. and that gave it a extra strength. So like it had these layers of bone and sinew, which increased the force and the energy when the string was released. So that meant again that women were able to get this kind of strength from their bows without necessarily needing the same kind of physical mm. strength of a bigger bow because that, they were smaller. That has a name that I'm trying to think of. It has a fancy name. I don't actually know it. I feel like it starts with an R. But anyway. Anyway. In battle, the archers would just like shower the enemy with arrows, like hundreds and hundreds of them. And sometimes they even tipped the arrows with poison. And in hand-to-hand combat, they used axes with these like narrow pointed blades. I don't know if the women fought in this hand-to-hand combat. A lot of people say that they're more of the light infantry. So they're kind of, again, part of that standing back and just shooting Mm. the arrows while the men go in for the close combat. Either way, they're still there. Although, like I said, some of the women who were found were buried with knives. So Mm. there is also a chance they got up close to person, even if that's just kind of for defense. It was originally thought that only unmarried women fought alongside the men and that once they were married, they kind of confined themselves to those felt covered wagons to raise Mm. the babies. But again, the graves have revealed children buried with their warrior mothers, which suggests that they continued their roles as warrior women. And when you when you think about it, again, if you're living in these small nomadic societies where everybody's just kind of doing everything, because they, they shepherded and, like, herded, um, like, sheep and things like mm. that with them as mm. they were going. So, like, everybody has this constant role to play. Like, can you really afford to have women just hanging out yeah. in the wagons? Yeah. Like, again, people, like, contemporary scholars are like, well, actually, these are probably, again our assumptions about the role that married domestic, like women play in terms of domesticity. There's really no reason that we have to think that this would have been a daily reality for the Scythian women. Now, according to Diodorus of Sicily, he was a Greek historian from around 65 BCE. He was interpreting contemporary Greek writing of the time. And he kind of, he wrote that the Scythians were ruled by strong women who were endowed with exceptional valour. That's a quote. He writes about one Scythian woman who possessed, quote, extraordinary authority, superb intelligence, physical strength and battle prowess. She handpicked a force of women and began subduing neighbouring lands. Now, as Mayer suggests, this part of what he wrote is not that extraordinary. It's probably true and actually there's probably a lot of these female leaders in Scythian um, society. However, he then goes on to do a little bit of mythologizing, saying that she went on to call herself the daughter of Ares and founded Themyscira at the mouth of Thermodon in Pontus, that she trained young girls in the art of war and was beloved by her subjects. Then he writes that she went on to create something of a gynocracy. 
enacting laws that women should always be sovereign and trained in warfare and that domestic tasks should be assigned to men and that baby boys have their legs maimed. So here's we get again into that Amazonian myth territory. But again, this is where I guess historians now with this archaeological evidence are starting to look at these texts and going, oh, yeah, okay. So that's where that comes from, yeah. It's been here all along, you know, we just... I let our assumptions blind us. So I'm going to come back now to the Kurgan where they found the cannabis and opium, right? Well, this, as I said, probably there partly for pain. And no wonder, if you're a warrior, you're probably going to have a few injuries. Mm. But Herodotus also suggests that it may have been used for more than just this. He writes this of the Scythians. They anoint and wash their heads. As for their bodies, they set up three poles leaning together to a point and cover these with woolen mats. Then, in the place so enclosed, to the best of their power, they make a pit in the centre beneath the poles and the mats and throw red-hot stones into it. The Scythians then take the seed of this hemp and, creeping under the mats, they throw it onto the hot red stones and, being so thrown, it smoulders and sends forth so much steam that no Greek vapour bath could surpass it. The Scythians howl in their joy at the vapour bath. This serves them instead of bathing, for they never wash their bodies with water. (laughs) And so, like, yeah, imagine them around a campfire throwing these uh, plants, quote-unquote. Herodotus wasn't sure if they were flowers or leaves or seeds. And then they're, like, getting up and dancing and screaming and having a great time. So really this is, I guess, it's a smoke tent, you know, a sweat lodge, (laughs) right, where they'd go inside with their charcoal braziers and smoke the place out. And they've actually found these tents inside some of the graves along with the uh, charcoal braziers. And so while, yes, they probably used the opiates and the marijuana for pain, there's also... Yeah, it wasn't just for the pain. Lifestyle. (laughs) Like, I think they were having a good time. And whether this is ritualistic, um, some say that it was a part of the funeral process. Others are just like, hey, maybe they just like to have a good time. Yeah, they just had a party. Why are we, like, so quick to just assume, like, oh, it must have been for ritual purposes, like... Maybe they would just have, like, what else did they have going on? They figured out how to get a high. Like, <laughs> good for them. Just let them have a good time. Let them have their fun. We don't have to make it mean anything. That's right. If but it did, great. Yeah. But if it didn't, well, okay. also great. <laughs> the Scythians were mummifiers and the burial of the dead was an important ritual. They removed the brain through holes that they cut in the head. They sliced up the bodies to remove as much soft tissue as possible. Then they replaced it with dry grass and sewed it up. They buried them with objects that they would need in the afterlife, as we discovered Mm. with our Yukok princess. And so that kind of brings me to the end of our journey into the, you know, I know that I didn't really cover the full birth, life, death of the, the Scythians, but, um, no, but I think it's like a beautiful way of covering so many issues, so many things, so many of the histories and the mythologies and the contemporary knees and the <laughs> other knees. Yes. I think the takeaway message here is sometimes myth really tells us more about who we are, I think, than we like to think it does and that history and myth 
can be a lot more closely intertwined than we think as well. Mm. And it can be really hard to separate them. But I also think it's interesting because the other thing it does as well is it shows us how history is this fixed point in the past, Mm -hmm. but history is actually changing, which is really a weird thing to think about. It's a weird concept, but it's actually what is happening because this is the way that our history evolves is this new knowledge comes mm-hmm. to the fore. We relook at these texts. We relook at what we've known in the past and we change it and it evolves. But it also does make me think about, you know, like a lot of these kind of myths about that kind of idea of this concept that there was some kind of utopia of matriarchy and like prehistory kind of. It's I think it's really wonderful to deconstruct that notion yeah. completely but to actually look at the fact that rather than trying to reclaim this idea or rather than trying to like make something out of this idea of this kind of like matriarchal warrior woman Mm. clan, it's actually finding instead a society that was gender, you know, in terms of egalitarian. That functioned. That functioned in terms of genders being equal. Yeah, and it's not about one or the other. Exactly, that's it. It's not about one being inferior or superior. It is actually that middle ground it's using the strengths that each have and bringing them together for the best of everybody yeah yeah i think that this can be summed up really well and again i'm going to quote maya here she says one can no longer claim that amazons were nothing but fantasy figures to be killed by mythic greek heroes Mm. that amazon myths were invented to discourage greek women from admiring strong women that amazons in greek art were simply stand-ins for persian men and that there was nothing in the historical world that shaped or influenced the images of amazons in literature and art yeah so that the greeks didn't make it all up. No. There was actually historical evidence yep. to this mythological idea of the Amazons. And like we said, they're not just foils. They're not just there for, you know. Heroes to best. Yep. Yeah. Well, I actually think that was a really fabulous way to finish our second series because we actually have done quite a few warrior women this mm. year. And I think that that kind of uh, was a neat little way to bring it back to, I guess, you know, Amazons as that archetypal warrior woman and looking at the real historical concept for where that whole mythology has come from. I think that they're also starting to rediscover similar kinds of things in a lot of like Viking Mm. burials. They're starting to discover that maybe female warriors have always existed and it was just... Our assumptions. But not only our assumptions as well, it's also who's writing the history books. Well, this is exactly and because, it. you know, the, because so much of our history comes from the Greeks. Yes. And because of the, the Greeks, and when we say the Greeks, by the way, we're not talking, like, we keep saying the Greeks. We <laughs> don't mean the now Greeks. No, no, no. We're you talking, know, about, we're the talking the about the antiquity. An, the ancient mm-hmm. Greeks. Because so much of our history comes from the ancient Greeks. And their tradition. And their Like tradition. kind of philosophical. Exactly. And because yeah. the ancient Greeks believed Mm -hmm. that women were such an abomination of course they're not going to record all of all of that female history because it doesn't matter to them so they don't record it and history is written by the victors and it's written by those with power and those with power get to dictate the way that we interpret data yeah so I, i i'm not suggesting that you know there is some you know, prehistory utopian matriarchal cult that existed. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm just saying that obviously as more research shows, mm. there were a lot more of these yeah. of these fighting warrior yeah. 
traditions that were female. Yep. So we hope that you have enjoyed it, whether you already knew everything about the Scythians and the Amazons or whether this is all completely new to you. Yeah. We hope. Or whether you're thinking you got it wrong. That's all. You <laughs> just, you've got that all wrong. I might have. That's fine. Soz. Of just one interpretation of history. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the show and to the end of season two. Thank you so much for being with us. And as we said at the start of the show, keep your eyes peeled for more information about our fringe show, Lady Pirates Give No Fucks, where we will, of course, be revisiting some other feisty fighting women who were historical and real. So... Yeah, more, if you, more swashbuckling to come. If you're in Adelaide, hit us up. And if you're not, we do hope to eventually get the show out into the world at some point in future times. It will happen. In the meantime, if you like the show, we have a bunch of extra content that you can access over the summer. If you want to join us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month, you can have access to behind the scenes interviews, our Holes in History series, a bunch of blooper reels, plus our forays into the world of animation. It's exciting times. And, of course, if you want to stay up to date with everything over the next period between the end of this season and the start of the next season, then you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at DeviantWomenPodcast. And if you would like to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, please do tell your friends about it. Remember, those episodes aren't going anywhere. You can keep listening over that long, long summer or winter, whatever it is for you. And if you'd like to buy some merchandise, then, of course, you can find T-shirts and enamel pins on Etsy. That brings us to the end of the show. We, we shan't keep you any longer. So please enjoy your season of many gifts and joyous <laughs> occasions. I don't know. What is it? The season of what is it? I don't know. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, guys. Yeah. And we will see you very soon where we will probably drop a Christmas special. Do a little bit of a wrap-up of the year, a little bit of a wrap-up of 2018 just to lead us on into 2019 and season three. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.